friends. Welcome to the Skyline Church Podcast. I'm Jonathan Middlebrooks, one of the pastors here at Skyline Church. Skyline is a worshiping community, a disciple-making community, and a generational community. We're committed to seeing revival in our city sparked through the presence of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. These sermons are specific to that purpose and in the context of our unique community. We hope that it might bless you in some way. Enjoy. are in for a treat this morning. Our friends Drew and Mary Caldwell are in town uh, from Beirut, Lebanon, and we're really excited to hear um, both an update on their ministry and a word that the Lord has really put on Drew's heart for our church, and uh, I I just want you guys to know how special they have been. I want you guys to hear how special you've been to our church, and really a lot of the goodness that God's brought in our church, it can be uh, considered connected to your ministry, and and really just a real clear moment in my life was a word that Mary spoke over a small group of people when we first met you, which was maybe 2017? 2017, and it was really this just beautiful prophetic word about first love about just living in the first love that Jesus is better than everything else. And it awakened in my heart, like really a, a memory of how I came to faith. It like did a, like a Psalm 51 thing in my heart of restore to me, Lord, the joy of my salvation. And it was kind of the beginning of like the weariness of ministry and working for God coming off and really the ministry of worship and prayer in our church coming in. And so I just want to say thank you, Mary, for that. And Drew, you guys, your family, we love you you. We're so excited to hear from you. So I'm going to call Drew up and I'm just going to pray for you before we get started. And so would you pray uh, with me for Drew? So God, thank you for Drew and Mary and their children. Thank you for their ministry. I pray tonight, uh, this morning, Holy Spirit, that you would speak through Drew, uh, that this word that you've placed on his heart, God, would hit our hearts in a way that only you can do, and it would transform us. We'd be transformed this morning in your presence. And so, Lord, we thank you for the faithful ones, God, who have gone into the world uh, to make disciples the way Mary and Drew have. And uh, so, Lord, we just bless you. We worship you today. Uh, We invite you, Holy Spirit, to speak in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, Morning, guys. So great to be with you guys. And Jonathan, thank you so much. That's incredibly encouraging for us to hear. Uh, It's been just a joy growing in friendship with this community, and we cannot express just the the many ways that we felt championed and loved by you all. Uh, And some of that will come out in some of the stories that I'm sharing, but it's been an incredible blessing just the the way God has knit our hearts to this community and and in in friendship and in mutual affection, and we're just, we're super thankful. So yeah, so I'm Drew. Mary's here uh, as well. She'll be sharing a little bit uh, in a little bit some stories from what's going on in her life. We've got three daughters who are also around. Uh, we got Layla, who's 13, Sophia, 11, uh, Hope is 9. And we've lived in the Middle East for 15 years, almost. Uh, we've lived in Lebanon for the last 12 years, so all our kids were, were born in the Middle East. And uh, we've been on a long journey uh, following God's leadership in our life uh, in terms of our mission in the Middle East. It was never something that I personally saw coming when I was when I was younger. I didn't have a heart to do missions or, you know, this kind of person who just dreams of living in the Middle East. I don't, you know, know who those people are, but I wasn't one of them. And uh, the, uh, but God 
gripped our hearts with something and, and it changed our perspective. Uh, you know, it's something that I always remind myself is that we are motivated not by a burden, but by a promise. Uh, clearly, living in the Middle East, there's a lot of burdens. Where you, can look at, you can look at all the problems, and you can just try to carry that yourself if you want. Uh, but the truth is, you can't really run your engine on burdens. Uh, it does, it's, not, it's not good fuel. It doesn't sustain you. But God gives us promises, and his promises stir faith, and they renew us, and they keep us going. They're, they're, they're promises that are beyond anything that we could ever produce or do, but those promises capture our hearts, and they, they move us. They keep us pursuing, you know, following step by step where God is leading us. And so we've lived in the Middle East for 15 years, and we love it, and we love the Middle East, and we are so thankful for the lives we get to live because we, we get to live. We get to be fed on the promises and faithfulness of God, and it's an incredible privilege. I think about Romans chapter 1, Paul talks about his desire to visit the church in Rome because he longs to impart some spiritual gift and receive in, in kind of an impartation from them, and that's a little bit of what I hope happens this morning and what we get to do when we're back in America. We get to, to receive. We come with uh, you know, hungry and in need of, of fellowship and prayer and support and encouragement in ways we sometimes don't even recognize. And we get to fellowship with you all and receive, receive just a refreshing uh, sense of the Lord's presence this morning as we worship. And hopefully we get to impart and share a little bit of what we're carrying as well that will be a blessing to you all and to your faith. Uh, I, I was reading, uh, we're actually, I think tomorrow night, uh, going to do somewhere here at the church a storytelling night. Uh, if you wouldn't, you're all welcome to come. 6.30 to 8.30 tomorrow night, uh, but we're, I'm going to share just a few stories, but we really love the honor of getting to share stories about what God is doing in the Middle East, and I was reading a psalm this summer, and it talked about a generation that failed to, uh, to fulfill God's calling on them. It was an unfaithful generation, and it describes what made this generation unfaithful. It said that they failed to remember the works of the Lord. Not the like concepts about God, not the theology about God, the works of God. In other words, they failed to, to feed themselves and to remember and to let their faith be shaped by what God is, has actually done and is doing. And in every generation, the Bible says God renews his works. In other words, God isn't just an abstract concept, obviously. He's, he's at work transforming people's lives, doing miracles in every generation. But oftentimes, if you're anything like me, we can live disconnected from that reality. We can live in our own world, and we can fail to renew our own faith on who God is and what he's actually doing. And so my hope is that as we share these stories, they would not just be uh, an interesting or exotic tale of faith, a Christian bedtime story or something like that, uh, but that they would be an actual remembrance of the works of our God. And that they would stir each one of us to a sense of expectation so that we can show up in faith to see what God wants to do in our time and in our place. Can we, can we reach for that this morning? So, uh, I, we've been, in, as you said, in the Middle East 15 years. And when we met, went to the Middle East, uh, the Middle East was considered a really, really hard place to do ministry. And probably for a lot of you, you're probably thinking, yeah, I would imagine it is a hard place to do ministry. Uh, but what I mean by hard is a place where you could spend your whole life sharing your faith, praying for your neighbors, being faithful, and never see any tangible results of your faithfulness. That's what I mean by a hard place. 
And generations of missionaries did exactly that. They spent their whole life in faithfulness, praying, serving, showing up, raising support, traveling the world, getting jet lagged, getting, facing all types of challenges, and hardly, many of them never saw what they hoped for. That was the Middle East that we moved to. In 2009, when we moved to the Middle East, when you talked to missionaries, if you knew a missionary, I remember one of our first short-term trips, we were working with a young missionary, and she said that her organization flew her to other Arab countries because she, had, she knew a woman who came to faith and got baptized. She was like the conference speaker. And, the, and that was because that was just, that was the, the reality of life in the Middle East at that time. That was the spiritual atmosphere. And if we followed the call of God on our life, and that was our story, it would be worth it. It would be more than worth it. It would be the greatest privilege of our life. But, even beyond that, we get to actually share that the Middle East is being transformed. That we are living in a historical moment, uh, a moment of awakening in the Middle East that is unrivaled in all of history. And I'm not the type of person to just make stuff up, okay? I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical by heart. I like, uh, I like logic and numbers just like many of you do, so don't be alarmed. Uh, the, uh, so basically, if you were to track the amount of Muslims coming to faith from the beginning, the founding of Islam, like in, you know, 500s, late 500s, all the way till now. More Muslims have come to faith in Jesus in the first 23 years of this century than in all of history combined. And not only is that true, but it's not even close. It's not even close. Not only is that true, but we are seeing movements led by Muslims who have come to faith in Jesus across the Muslim world. Um, and, you know, in the Arab world where we live, you know, there was a time when, like I said, people could count on their hand how many Muslim background believers uh, there are. And, and currently... I get to do ministry with a, a Lebanese guy who has a, a ministry through media where they are seeing, I, I'm in a text group where they send, they send screenshots whenever someone is communicating that they've experienced Jesus, had a dream of Jesus, want to come to faith. I get text messages every day. Woman in Algeria saying, how do I follow Jesus? There's no believers where I live. Uh, a, a young man in Iraq saying, I want to follow Jesus. I'm scared for my life. I need encouragement. What, what's my next step? A woman, a, a man in Saudi Arabia saying, I had a dream of Jesus last night and I want to know the truth. Every day. Now that is historical. That is not the, the success of a particular ministry, a, a convincing apologetic. That is the work of the Holy Spirit, awakening a whole people. And there was just the, like right before we traveled back in June, I got to help facilitate a prayer conference uh, with a friend who'd been running prayer conferences on behalf of Syria since 2015. He's been, he lived in Syria 15 years ago, he's been praying for Syria for years, and uh, again, when he started, he knew just a couple of Syrian believers who had come to faith when he, back when he lived there. He, since 2015, he's been gathering foreigners and missionaries like myself and other Christians to pray for Syria. And this time, 
the conference was not for people like that. The conference was for Syrians who have come to faith in the last three years, Syrian refugees living in Lebanon, equipping them to be a kingdom of priests who take up their calling to pray for their nation. And we were able to equip 60 Syrian Muslim background believers that we could gather, like people that we could call up and get together. And uh, we spent days just with them, passing the baton to them, saying that God's raising you up to pray for your nation. These are things that felt like fairy tales 15 years ago. You guys feel that? The, the type, and it's just a little drop. What we can see and what we can bear witness to is a drop of the incredible things that God is doing. Okay, so at the same time, we have lived in the Middle East through an era of unspeakable suffering. Unspeakable suffering. Uh, the crisis in Syria, the humanitarian crisis that has unfolded there, the, we've witnessed wave after wave of refugees coming into Lebanon, each generation of them with new horrors that they have experienced. Uh, we have seen in Lebanon the complete meltdown of our economy, people's livelihood and futures completely lost due to corruption. Uh, we've seen our city literally explode in August 4th, uh, 2020. We saw, uh, we've seen an earthquake in Turkey that has, that killed 60,000 people just in Turkey alone uh, in, a, in, in just moments. And this is, this is a time in the Middle East of unspeakable suffering. And those two things are not completely unrelated. <laughs> But I want to stand in that place of, of, in one hand, bearing witness to the incredible works of God, and in another hand, honestly bearing witness to the incredible suffering of people. And from standing in between those two realities, I want to look at some passages from the scripture today. We're going to look at, if you want to look it up, John chapter 12. We're going to look at that. We're going to look at Romans chapter 8. And we're going to look at these two images. But in John chapter 12, this is Jesus coming into Jerusalem. He's getting close to the moment where he's going to go to the cross, and uh, he is, the disciples bring to him some people from among the Greeks, you know, these Gentiles, and, and the disciples come, and they, they're like, hey, Jesus, these Greek guys want to meet you, and I don't know, I get the vibe a little bit that it's this moment of, you know, they're, they're, they're thinking Jesus' popularity is spreading, that, you know, that there is... Uh, you know, some, you know, some sense that now even, look, even the Greek people are interested in you. And, and for the disciples, they're, you know, the disciples are a little bit always, like, not quite catching, the, not right reading the room when it comes to Jesus. They're, 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 they're thinking that this is all about Jesus' rising fame and popularity. And, and then Jesus doesn't even respond to the, it's a funny little moment in the scripture, because they say, these guys want to meet you. And Jesus doesn't even respond to that. He says, unless a seed falls to the ground and dies... It remains alone. But if it falls to the ground and dies, it bears much fruit. And then he goes on, and he says, What then should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, for this hour I have come. Father, glorify your name. And, you know, Jesus is talking about the cross. He's in this moment... The cross is in front of him, and Jesus is reflecting on his disciples. He's trying to get them to see, to see their lives through the kingdom story. And he's saying, look, right, unless a seed, unless it, it empties itself, it gives itself up, it surrenders itself, it will remain alone. It's a weird language, isn't it? If, if that seed seeks self-preservation, it will remain alone. But if it empties itself, 
It will bear much fruit. And then, you know, what then should I say? Should I say the most natural thing that anyone, literally any human being would say if facing the cross? God, could you get me out of this mess? Could you rescue me from this uncomfortable situation? And he says, no. For this I came. Father, glorify your name. Glorify your name in this moment of suffering. So if we skip to Romans 8, any luck up there, guys? Or if someone has a Bible, I can just read it out loud. If someone has their Bible handy. Thank you. Romans chapter 8. Awesome. Romans chapter 8, we're going to start in verse 18. So, Jesus has this image of a seed, a seed that falls to the ground and dies, that surrenders and empties itself, and that bears much fruit. Paul uses an image that, this summer I've been seeing this similarity between these seemingly different images. But in Romans 8, 18, we're going to read down to verse 26. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself would be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. There's a lot here. I'm just going to unpack a few pieces of it. So Paul is giving this image of groaning, so much groaning, right, in this passage. Jeez, like we're groaning, the Spirit's groaning, everyone's groaning. And the word groaning that's used here is, actually he's borrowing this from like the, the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament. This would be the exact same word that he used when he talked about the slaves in Egypt and their groans rose before God and he heard them. So the groaning, there's a groaning that's happening. There's pains of childbirth that are happening. Now, I want to look at these two images. This image of a seed that falls to the ground and dies, and this image of the groaning and pains of childbirth. I want to look at these two images, and I want to think about what, what we think life is about. What we think this life, this one we're living, what we think it actually is. So historically, uh, all the way back in the time of Jesus, like when Paul, you know, would have been, you know, in his, like, environment in Tarsus growing up, in the, in the ancient world, there would have been, you know, a very common debate among philosophers. And it's the same debate, it's the same question that everyone has been asking since then up till now, which is, what is the good life? And am I doing it right? How can I live the good life? How can I live my best life? Right? We talk like this. We're just, we, we, we ask the same question. And in the ancient times, there were like schools of thought. So you had the Epicureans. And the Epicureans were like, well, it's about enjoying life. It's about maximizing your, the pleasantness of your life. And Epicureans uh, weren't just sort of 
party animals, pleasure seekers, but they were about carving out a little peace of mind, keeping yourself separate from the chaos of the world so that you could enjoy a nice, pleasant life, right? Uh, a nice, peaceful, uh, you know, little piece of the world just to you. And for the Epicureans, that was the good life. The good life was preserving your peace of mind, enjoying a pleasant, comfortable life. Sound familiar? Epicureanism dominates the Western secular age. It's the it's it's the it's, it's what we've it's what essentially is the underground philosophy of our of, of our society, which is that life is about finding the best life for you, your good life. How do I live it? Uh, there was actually an, an alternative group that argued with the Epicureans, and these were the Stoics. And these were the guys that were like, life is about civic duty and honor and and these type of things. And actually. Because our culture is recognizing that when you live the, the Epicurean life, when you live for your pleasure, your good life, you actually end up numb, bored, you end up disenchanted, life ends up losing its meaning, its edge, and because of the disillusionment with the pleasant life, there's actually a rise in Stoicism. Is anyone familiar with this on the internet? My, I teach in a school, my, my 15, 16 year old Lebanese Muslim students read Marcus Aurelius, ancient Stoic emperor and philosopher. I find that so weird, but it's because they see it coming. Like, we're lost. What's the, what is life all about? What if the question, what is the good life, is a question that is completely foreign to the Bible? What if it's not a question that Jesus or Paul thought was really the question? What if when we think in those terms, when we allow culture to get us thinking in those terms, what if we've already begun to lose the plot? I believe that the question the Bible asks is not how do I live the good life? The question is, what type of seed is God making my life into? And what does God want to give birth to through my life? What type of seed is my life being made into? And how's, what is God wanting to give birth to through my life? Now, I'm going to do something now that I know is dangerous as a man to do. I'm going to attempt to make an analogy from childbirth. <laughs> Women, I ask for your patience. I will try to be humble as I approach this topic. Uh, Paul did it. He wasn't, you know, probably as cautious as I am, but uh, just bear with me. So, from what I hear, <laughs> childbirth is extremely painful. It's not just painful, it's disorientingly painful. It's like shockingly painful to be something that women throughout history have, have all done to give birth to the next generation. Like, how could it be so hard and so painful? It's crazy. Um, and, uh, you know, you think of most extremely painful things, it only happens to a few people. But, like, childbirth happens to every mother. It's a crazy thing. And it's, it's disorienting, it's painful, it's shocking, it's scary. And... Uh, and yet, as painful as that is, what mother, if you were to, to go up to her and say, go, and, and you were to, and you were to you know, have this mother sitting next to her son or her daughter at age two, at age four, at age six, at age 12, at age 25, at age 30, and say, man, wasn't it hard giving birth? Yeah, it was really hard. Was it worth it? Was it worth it? Isn't that a stupid question? Like, no one's ever asked that question. 
It's because it's, it's like evidentially dumb to ask that question. No one would ever think, you know, that no matter how painful, like, okay, you can compare the pains of childbirth to a really bad kidney stone, or you could compare the pains of childbirth to climbing Mount Everest, but you would never compare the pains of childbirth to the glory of what you gave birth to, right? of the years of connection and love and meaning that is a relationship with your child. They're not worthy of being compared. And that's exactly what Paul says. For I consider that the sufferings of this present age are not worthy of comparison with the glory that will be revealed in us. We, when we, when we partner with God, when we embrace the, the groaning of longing with God to give birth to what he wants to give birth to through our life. We are giving birth to something that no matter what it costs us is not worth comparing with what it produces. You guys with me? And the, uh, the, the, the truth of that, right? That uh, what, you know, the writer of Ecclesiastes calls our brief life on this earth, he calls it vapor in the wind, passing away. The problem with this whole conversation about what is the good life is it, is, it, is it tries to make the laboring room, the delivery room, into the destination. But this life is not about how much enjoyment can I squeeze from. It's what does God want to give birth to through me? Because this life is passing away. This life is a vapor. It's dissipating. But what we give birth to in it is of eternal weight and glory. I, I saw this uh, in an interesting example of this. See, the challenge, though, the challenge is that we live our life, when we, when we look at our own life and we try to make sense of what's happening, we live with the camera, like, zoomed in, where we only can see, you know, the, the immediate result of anything that we do. We can't ever see the big picture, because the truth is, what God, what God gives birth to through our life like I was sharing about those missionaries of old, might happen years from now. It might require years of faithfulness. We might groan for years before we give birth to the thing God wants to give birth to. It's not an instant process, and we're not in control, right? But when we keep the camera zoomed in, we too quickly lose the plot. We say, this is uncomfortable. We get off the, we get off the birthing bed, and we try to somehow enjoy, try to distract ourselves, but the truth is that when we zoom out, when we, when, when we can, if we can zoom out and see the bigger picture, right, we would, we would never hesitate to endure and accept the, the groans and the pains of whatever God has called us to in the, in the short term. So uh, I was in a, on a trip with my oldest daughter, Layla, to Rome, and we were in Rome and we were... Uh, going to pick up this like day pass to the different events and you have to go to only certain offices and I was in this office and I realized the office was inside some sort of historical site and so I asked them what is this place like where am I standing and they were like well this is the Carcer Maximus and I you know strange word okay what's the Carcer Maximus like oh it was Rome's maximum security penitentiary oh and then they said yeah the actually down there in that cell is where Peter and Paul were imprisoned different points in their life Okay, I'm going to check that out. So, Layla and I go down, and you have to descend these stone stairs into this dark underground room. And you're sitting in this walled room, and you're picturing, you know, Peter there on his knees praying the Lord's Prayer day after day. You're picturing... 
Paul, you know, praying the Psalms from memory day after day. And, you know, literal, these guys were literal seeds buried in the ground. And if you were to keep the camera zoomed in, in that moment of history, if you were to come and see a Peter or a Paul, these, you know, Judean nobodies sitting, rotting in a prison cell in Rome, you would think, fools. What a waste. What a, this is not the good life. It's not it. What are, what are they accomplishing? What could this possibly be accomplishing? But the amazing thing is, when you walk up those stairs, out into the light of day, and you look at the horizon of the city around you, you know what you don't see? You don't see statues of Caesar. You see cathedrals. You see a civilization transformed by those seeds. You see that when they were in their prison cells, and they could do nothing but pray, they could do nothing but long and groan and remind themselves of the promises of God and long for the kingdom, that they were giving birth to something. Something that so far outweighed their time in prison that it's not worth comparing. A few days later, uh, I, we, Layla and I went to the, the catacombs on the outside of Rome. And if you've ever been there, it's just an incredible experience. It's not on everyone's list, but I recommend it. It's an incredible thing. Uh, you go to these catacombs, and it's these underground Christian, early Christian cemeteries, and they're decorated. These are like from the first few centuries. They're decorated with all this Christian art. And so many of the images uh, actually portray, uh, like, they're a bunch of figures with their hands like this. And the guide was saying that this was the ancient symbol of thankfulness. I don't know anywhere else in the world where you would find an underground cemetery of persecuted people who are expressing their thankfulness. It's truly astounding. And you're walking through, and, and they, they begin to explain that during the time before Christianity became the official religion of Rome, when they were a persecuted minority, half a million Christians were buried in these underground uh, cemeteries. Half a million seeds. Now, I don't think those seeds were sitting there thinking, I'm so thankful for the successful ministry and amazing upstanding reputation that God has given me. I don't think that's what their life felt like. I think that, but I think that they, they knew they were giving birth to something. They had the faith to even as they were persecuted, as they suffered, to, to raise up their expressions of thankfulness because they, they, they could see the bigger picture. They knew they were a part of something and they, they became seeds of a whole civilization, of, a, of the church, of the, of the Christian movement in Europe as we know it. We're, those stories, I, I found it deeply encouraging to remember our roots as, as Christians. Like what the type of lives, the type of faith, the type of groaning that gave birth to the church. Because we are living in our own chapter of that in the Middle East. We're seeing a new chapter of that played out. Uh, I've already shared a bit of, of, of what's happening, but I want to just highlight one story because it's actually connected to you all. So... Uh, you're like, where is he going with this one? Okay. No. Uh, so, when, uh, when we first moved to the Middle East, like I said, you know, we would meet in a room, and we would look out over the city, and we'd pray, God, pour out your spirit. God, bring awakening. God, call people yourself. Send dreams and visions. And we'd be full of faith because the Holy Spirit gives the gift of faith. But then you'd kind of walk out of the room, and you'd kind of lose the plot a little bit, and you'd feel like, man, is this just spiritual fantasy that we're engaging in? 
Like when we pray these big prayers, when we pray these, these you know, books of, book of Acts style prayers, pour out your spirit on all flesh, God, is it like, are, are, we just, are we just like kind of entertaining ourselves? Is this reality? Because so often the faith that we receive, the seed of faith that's planted in us, when we walk out in the real world just gets battered. And so, but we would, but still we'd gather and we'd pray and we'd gather and we'd pray and we'd pray those big prayers. When we moved to Lebanon, and it's going to connect a little bit with what Mary's going to share in a second, but when we moved to Lebanon, uh, we longed to have some expression to the Syrian refugees because within a year of living there, Syrian refugees began to pour into Lebanon. We prayed that God would just give us an opportunity to serve them and to minister to them. And uh, when when Mary ended up, God began leading Mary step by step through this journey of uh, starting a ministry of, of mobile clinics where she's doing clinics in these different refugee camps. And, you know, we would be pray, God, look at, you know, we'd see, God, these Syrians, they're suffering. Let them know you. Let them encounter you. But then we'd hang out with Syrians and they weren't knowing him or encountering him. And that's a little bit exhausting. And yet, God's called us to groan to persevere, to give birth to things, whether or not we can see them. And so we just keep praying. Well, eventually we meet this one woman at a clinic who says, we're praying for people in the, in, we, we were praying for people in the clinic. And she says, wow, there's something different about you guys. You guys brought the presence of God into my home. So this woman, she goes on her own journey. But at that time you're thinking, it's just one person who's actually doing this, who's actually becoming a disciple and sharing with others. In each, you know, as we continue to pray and persevere, suddenly she's starting, she's, God gives her a dream and she's starting groups in different communities. Suddenly she's wanting to go back into Syria and this is where you guys come in. We, you guys actually gave a really generous donation to us to send Syrian widows back into Syria uh, because they wanted to go back to, uh, to Syria to continue their lives, but also to plant the church. So we, we send them, we train them, we equip them, we send them out, and uh, we don't hear much from it. Again, it just feels like you're just sowing these frail little seeds. Just this spring, this is our friend here, she goes back to Syria on a pastoral visit to visit some of those women who had gone back to Syria. They live, in a, they live in an area that used to be controlled by ISIS, and she was told when she arrived, this is how she should dress, because then no one will know that she's visiting people. Do like No one will recognize how many people she's visiting, uh, or this is what all the believers do so that the, you know, the believing women so that men don't know who they are and who's visiting who and all that. So she dresses like this. She shows up with these women and they tell her, we're so glad you're finally here. We have 50 women that want to get baptized. And so they're holding this mass baptism for 50 women out in, in the back country of Syria. And this stuff, 50 women getting baptized in, an, in a formerly ISIS-controlled area of Syria... This is stuff that would have felt fantastic when we prayed for it. And yet, God wants to show us that when we pray those prayers, we're giving birth to things. We're giving birth to things. Mary, I'd love for you to come up. So, uh, part of Mary's big story has been her desire to, to be able to respond to crisis and to see the kingdom come. Um, and there's been a long-term thing that she's carried and grown for, and she's seen some, some of the breakthrough of that in this season. Yes. So I just um, got to graduate in May from Wheaton College up in Illinois with a humanitarian and disaster leadership degree. So at, which just feels great for Lebanon in the Middle East, you know, just get more equipping. As a nurse, I thought this would be great. And I've always actually wanted to do this, even when I was in my 20s, wanted to do disaster relief, um, but then got swept into this story 
other things. So in my last semester of being, uh, you know, of graduating, the earthquake hits in Turkey and on day two, we have a very random connection, an organization, a German organization who invites me to be on a, a first response team. So I like pack up my <laughs> textbooks, get in a plane, go on a deployment, get to Turkey, and we're, you know, got invited day two, but it took us to day five where I can get in the epicenter of the destruction. So day five, in the middle of... Um, Oh yeah, here's the context, sorry. There's, um, it's the size of Germany that was actually affected. Over 59,000 people are killed and 14 million people are affected. Um, I did a map, is that the next one? Yeah, so you can see you can see Beirut down on the bottom. We actually woke up in the middle of the night from the earthquake. It, it went down, it came south. So people up in Istanbul didn't feel the earthquake, um, but it was a really large area affected. Um, so. But we actually went, I responded to Antakya, which is the ancient city of Antioch, and it was wild to see an entire city destroyed. I mean, the entire city was destroyed. So I'm there day five, there's rescue teams from all over the world rescuing people from the rubble. Um, I'm walking down streets where people are crying out, lamenting, and people are standing there hoping that they're being able to rescue their family members. So I'm equipped as a medical professional, so I'm doing medical stuff, but I'm also recognizing that actually what a lot of people want is to grab me and hold me and let me pray for them. Um, the, the kind of miraculous thing is that Turkey, although, you know, is actually speaks Turkish, but the area that was most affected speaks Arabic. So I was able to communicate with both Turks and there was about four to six million Syrians in this area that was affected. So the Syrians that I've been working with for the last 10 years, I, I, they have such a huge you know, spot in my heart. So I'm able to work with the Syrians and the Turks are able to speak Arabic. So I'm walking the streets and getting to hold these people. And I would ask them, can I pray for you? And they would, they would cling to me and ask me to pray that you know, their family would be found or that this would be found. It was, it was such an intense moment, but it was also this moment of seeing how the father had equipped me and um and I I would say that the thing I'll go to the story in a second um I think the thing that like I just want to like speak over us as believers like we all have different giftings I'm not expecting everyone to fly into disaster zones but there is something about his presence there's something about Jesus and the hope that we carry that when we go into uh, the darkest place we go to someone who is in despair we go to someone who doesn't know like even to think straight we are carrying something that that their soul desperately needs and it's not education and it's not the right words it's Jesus like we're carrying the thing that they need and when they like grab you and you can like pray over them something takes place in that moment that you're like you're saying we don't know like we're pouring a seed into this moment so I had so many beautiful kingdom encounters and then I'll just share this one story so probably a couple days were in the heart of the, the, the actual destruction and then um, I can tell that this city is getting really resourced there's you know the, the, the Turkish army is responding there's rescue teams everywhere and so kind of from our background I'm like hey I know there's got to be villages all over that are not getting resourced so we go back into, into our you know room we start praying asking the Holy Spirit to guide us pull at a map look at the small villages on the border of Syria and say father would you show us the people that don't have help will you show us people who don't have food don't have shelter and we want to go you know go find these people so we start praying feel like break into small groups get in cars and start driving to 
find people that need help. And so we walk into this one area, we find some Syrians, and it's a winter storm while this is happening, which is just horrible. So it's freezing, it's snowing out. We walk into this pretty small space. It's really hard to <laughs> give here. But this small space, probably from like the, the pews from here where the TV is to the doors, okay? Like where... Katie, wave, yeah, there you go. And there are 81 people sleeping in this tent. 81 people. It's so, I can't even fathom how they're sleeping. I walk into the tent. Two women had given birth in the tent the day before from stress, and also all the hospitals are destroyed or maxed out. So I'm the first person that does like a new baby assessment. And, and in the tent, there are people sick. So, you know, I'm like, we got to get these people shelter, like get them out of one tent. So at the very back of the tent, they pull me over to this little girl, Rakaya. And she's 11. She's the same age as my second born. So, I, you know, I'm sitting with her and the mom is super scared. And they're like, she's been vomiting and having diarrhea for a couple days. We think she's dehydrated. And, and at this point, the mom is so traumatized and they've seen such horrible things. The mom thinks she's going to die. There's nowhere I can take her. And so I'm, I'm, I'm looking at her, I'm doing a, you know, assessment, and I can pretty quickly see that I don't actually think it's like something really serious. I actually think it's trauma. So I'm sitting with this sweet girl, and I'm talking with her, and I'm asking her questions. I'm asking her what she saw, and I'm asking her how it's affecting her. She's crying, crying softly, and then I just encourage her to eat and drink, and I pray over her and pray over the mom. And the next day, another kind of amazing story is where everyone's telling us that there's no way we're going to get any shelter, like all the supplies, we're going to have to fly them in from other countries, and maybe Germany can charter a plane, and maybe Lebanon, and we're just feeling the need that we've met multiple camps, people don't have shelter. So we're praying and saying, God, you can do miracles. Some of you guys are on our prayer team, so some of you guys are praying with us, and I'm like, God, you can do miracles, like help us find shelter. Get in our cars, drive literally five minutes, and we see some, a place open that's like has tarps. We're like, wait, what? Get out of the car. Because we speak the language, start talking with people. Like, yeah, we're like, can we get 50 tarps? And they're like, yeah great, give us a couple hours. Like, do you have someone who can provide the wood that they could make their own homes? Yeah. Get on the phone. Be ready by 5 p.m. So we're like, everyone's telling us we're not going to be able to get this for three or four weeks. Here we are at the same day. So I get to go back at, that night at 5 p.m. to the same camp of people, of 81 people. We brought 11 like shelters, which they're super excited. Bring food, bring blankets. And guess who runs out to me? Rukaya. She runs up to me, hugs me. I, I'm like, whoa. And uh, she's like, after, she's calling me doctora. Doctora, after you prayed for me, I got healed. I got healed. I feel completely fine. And so then there's this, this like probably five or six people just kind of waiting for me to pray for them. There's this line of people. <laughs> like, oh my gosh. So I get to pray for some of them. And one of them is a woman who's uh, you know, her aunt, Rukaya's aunt. This is a whole kind of family clan who's had really horrible reflux, had a scope scheduled for the day after the earthquake. Um, I pray for her and all her pain goes away. So the amazing thing is like I've gotten to go back multiple times. So I've been to Turkey five times. My kids came with me a couple times. And, um, and we're seeing the Lord touch this group, this clan. Like it was, he's on their, like he's on their heart. Like he sees them. He brings us to them. He's healing them. He's, he's showing up and crazy ways to provide for them. Um, and so just us getting to say yes, us responding in these moments, we get to see, we get to see the kingdom in amazing ways. So, 
Oh yeah, sorry, last part. So this is just a picture of the post-explosion, okay? So that you guys were with us in that whole moment. We actually got kind of uh, nested into you guys right after the explosion and got support here and counseling and then got to go back. And after the explosion, did the same thing. We were doing relief and um, I asked the women what they needed. They needed trauma healing. We did trauma healing Bible studies. I shared some of that last time. But I've got a group of about 13 to 15 women that are my leaders and they have been transformed by trauma healing Bible studies. And as I asked them what else they need, they said livelihood because their husbands don't have jobs. So we got some Lebanese people to train them and do handmade stuff. So all of that's out in the lobby. And so please help these women by just buying their bags and their all their sweet stuff. Um, but it's amazing seeing them empowered. They love it. They do it in a kind of trauma-informed way. And they're also leading women in their community through these trauma healing Bible studies. So, yeah. Awesome. All right, so just to, to uh, kind of close this, I, I think when, when Mary's sharing these stories about these, these women that have been healed through these trauma healing Bible studies and now they're reaching healing others, it's, a good, it's maybe a, a good picture of, I think, what I feel like the Lord's trying to speak to these passages here, which is that if we were to go to like refugees and try to help them live their best life, we'd be a bit naive. But that's not our hope. That's not the invitation. They get something better than that. They get invited to become a part of the story that's, that's giving birth to eternal glory. That, that even though their lives are hard and by any measurable standard are not good lives, their lives are beautiful. Their lives are meaningful. They're transformational. They are participating in the works of God. They are groaning with him to give birth to what he longs for. And that's the invitation to all of us. Now, it might be a bit exotic, and it might feel a bit remote, and it might feel a bit overwhelming, some of the stories we're sharing, and that's okay. Because this passage actually ends in a very pastorally comforting place. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The Holy Spirit, for 2,000 years, you know, Jesus sent the Spirit to lead the church. How does his leadership work? How does the Spirit lead his people? He leads by groaning within us, by groaning the very longings and hopes and desires of God inside of us. Uh, groaning for the, the brokenness in our community to be healed, groaning for people who, are, who don't have a family to, have, uh, to be adopted into the family of God, longing for the world as God created it to be. And the invitation to us is just wherever we're at, to say, God, would you groan your groanings inside of me? Holy Spirit, would you groaning, groan with the longings of God in my heart? Would you move within me? Uh, that's all that we've ever done. <laughs> that's all that we ever can do because it's what God wants to give birth to. It's not our plans, not our strategies. It's the, the birthing of God through the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. So I'm just going to pray that over us uh, just to, to wrap us up here today. Thank you, Lord, for who you are. Thank you for your works, that you are a God of salvation and healing, that you're a God who reveals himself. Thank you for this community, Lord. Thank you for that we are a part of the eternal family of God. And I pray uh, over this room, God, that you, would, yeah, that you would groan on our behalf. We want to give birth 
to what you want to give birth to through our lives, God. We want to become the seeds that you want to make us into. So we welcome your work, Holy Spirit. We don't want to be hardened and we don't want to try to escape your invitation to groan with you. We don't want to try to numb or distract. We want to be present to you and what matters to you, Spirit of God. Grown within us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.